Hey, this is LGBTQ and A, where we get to know different members of the LGBTQ community. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today I'm talking to writer Alil Cruz. Alil writes about religion, bisexuality, gender, and many other things. Stay tuned. Hey, Leo. Hi, how are you? Good. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. Uh, because I think, I'm excited because <laughs> I think it's so important to talk and write about, like you do, religion because it has become such a taboo subject in our community. Mm-hmm. And often rightfully so, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, the reason I think a lot of people both that are LGBT activists, a lot of gay and lesbian activists who don't want anything to do with religion as well as just people in our community is because of that's where our harm is coming from. That's where um, that's what's fueling the legislation. That's what's fueling the hate crimes, the rhetoric that dehumanizes us, that creates violence against us. Um, so it makes sense. And I'm really speaking, at least in the United States, specifically about Christianity, um, because there is no other religious group that has the same political capital as the evangelical community. Um, but... There are a lot of us who are LGBT people of faith. Um, I think a Pew Religion report that came out two years ago showed that 49% of LGB, I don't know why they didn't ask about trans people, but LGB people identify with Christian faith, um, and another 11 and uh, percent identify with Hinduism, uh, uh, Hindu and uh, Buddhism and things like that. So the majority of people are LGBT people of faith, whether or not they actually go to religious spaces regularly or not, but they have those faith things. and. Because the root causes of our of our harassment and our hate comes from religion, for me, as a person of faith, it's important for me to kind of meet it head on and not dance around the subject. Yeah, forty nine percent is a really big number, isn't it? I was surprised at it too. Um, it you know again that doesn't mean that they're going to church every week. That doesn't mean because because there aren't as many churches and sp- safe spaces for them. And a lot of times, the safe spaces that are for LGBT people of faith don't always align with their denomination or religious beliefs. Um, that just means that they identify with Christianity and that they believe in it and they may have their own personal worships, whatever it may be, at home. Um, but for me, it's also important to create spaces so that those people feel like they can have a home and don't have to just say they identify as Christian, but actually have spaces for them to flourish as Christian people in community. Absolutely. Have you always found it? Are you you're a Christian? I am. Have you always found it to be an accepting place for <laughs> no, you? No, oh, really? Absolutely not. Um, no, I was born and raised in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and that religious background is Ben Carson's. If you can, That's the biggest Seventh-day oh, wow. Adventist person. Very conservative space. Um, I've only ever gone to Seventh-day Adventist schools all the way up into college. Wow. Um, the majority of actually um, hate that I've received from my sexual orientation has been at uh, has predominantly been religious spaces. I was asked to leave my academy when I came out at 14. Um, I dealt with a lot of hate coming into college um, because of the advocacy that I started doing in college. I was writing and speaking at major spaces about sexuality and faith while going to a very conservative Christian space, uh, church, um, Christian church. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's so I actually I haven't found the most accepting space, at least not in the official institutions. I found amazing community. Um, in queer people of faith who are very resilient and have really kick-ass theology. Like, queer theologians have, like, such beautiful, liberating theology that, like, these straight white theologians wish they could. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, so, like, I found it in community with people like me and with people who um, are allies to our community, but not necessarily with these um, structures that be... Yeah. Can I ask why you chose to come out at that age in an unsafe environment? Um, I've been, always been very self-aware, so it's like it's so I like I, I've I've always tried to be very authentic, and I, 
um, you know, I never really, I've only ever identified as bisexual. I've always had crushes with girls and guys when I was younger. And I just thought you would be like sorted, like, you know, Harry Potter sorting hat into a gay or straight house. Like I just did, like I thought everyone had the same feelings as I did and that eventually they chose to be gay or straight. Um, and so when I actually did a Google search, I like guys and girls or boys and girls, something like that. And it said bisexual. I was like, oh, that makes sense. Oh, so all of a sudden, you grew up liking both and just assuming, just assuming everyone, everyone did. did. Like I thought, like everyone was like eventually would be like straight or gay, and that's it. And so when I like really realized that that was like an option for me, I got really excited. And like people would be like, "You're gay, or you're straight, or, you know, or, or you're, uh, you know, you like guys." And I'm like, "Well, I'm actually bisexual." Like thinking that that would make it better, but it wasn't. Um, so I just like I don't know. I wanted to be authentic, and as soon as I realized um, that there was people like me, it made me feel um, understood, and it, it of a little. Uh, you know, validified my experience. Um, and so I came out stupidly. I wasn't dating anyone. I was still, I mean, I was young. I was 13, 14 years old. I was a virgin. I wasn't, whatever. I was just claiming my sexual orientation in terms of my romantic and even sexual feelings. Uh, but that quickly got into a, you ha- I had to leave the, the school. Which is just a fancy way of being expelled. Because it's a private Christian school, so you pay too much money for it to be expelled. <laughs> they ask you to leave. <laughs> There's no choice in leaving, but you leave. I guess I'm just fascinated by people who do come out in these kinds of environments. Uh, because I grew up in the South, near the Bible Belt, and I did not come out until I went to college. So this academy was in Georgia, actually. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. It was in the middle of the... Yeah. I was... I, I moved around a lot when I was younger. I was born in Puerto Rico. I grew up a part of my youth, younger years outside of Chicago. I spent my high school years in Georgia and then went to college in Michigan. Wow. And now I live in New York. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the, I mean, the South can be intense and not inclusive. No, I mean, yeah. So there's it's actually, there's, yeah, I mean, outside of religious spaces, I think, you know, I've had the most anti-LGBT kind of hate crimes. I've had my car keyed with the word faggot. I got into, like, fights and with individuals who were really homophobic when I was, like, 16, 17 years old um, in the South. And actually, for a long time, it's just a really weird thing. I held a, like, a stigma against Southern people. Like, I would hear a Southern accent and automatically assume they were homophobic and be put on edge. Um, I actually, it's a really weird thing. About three, four years ago, there was a screening of a film called Seventh Gay Adventist, which is about LGBT people in my church in College Dale, Tennessee, or Chattanooga, well, it was, I think it was College which was right next to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and this was the first screening, I was helping the directors and the producers, I've been to 12 screenings in like 12 different states, and this was the first screening that there was people who were claiming that they might be violent towards people, we, like, we had a higher security, like that was the first time, so I was like on edge, <laughs> arriving to this, um, and he, you know, seeing very traditionally southern, rednecky people come in and walk in. But it was the most powerful screening, right? So I, I'm gonna start crying. This is so great. Um, I like afterwards there was a Q and A, and I stood up and I apologized to people because I told them like as I was taking, I was helping take tickets, and as I was um, uh, listening to these people come in, I that I had this perception of them and that they were, it was wrong, and they were incredibly receptive to the film and very engaging. And then one after another, people stood up, came up to me and said, "I'm from the south, and I want to say I'm sorry." Or I'm a Southern Baptist, and I'm sorry. And I'm, like, bawling as there's a line <laughs> of people from the South hugging me and apologizing for things that they had that they didn't do. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I don't know that story came That's up. amazing. Yeah. So, like, I mean, yeah, it's... it's the But there's... Yeah, I don't... I feel like the, the way homophobia... Um, manifest herself in the South is unique. I don't. I don't, I don't want to ever say necessarily that it's worse. It can be worse for a lot of people because it's there's 
a lot of racism, racist history as well, which complica- you know complicates the homophobia and transphobia. I think that with um, your story, though, it's yeah. amazing that these people would sit and watch that documentary mm-hmm. even. Mm-hmm. And, and like, there was like 400 people that came. Wow. You know, I, I agree. All religious people. Yeah. Wow. I know what you're saying, though, you don't want to put blanket terms on the South yeah. as being all bigots, because there are lovely people. Mm-hmm. And and I would actually, I'm from North Carolina, I would say that the people in North Carolina are more liberal than the executives in charge. Mm-hmm. And so that doesn't actually match up. But I think that the bigots are often, like, the loudest people. Yeah, and they have a lot of power, um, political, um, and in the religious spaces. I'm actually going to be in North Carolina next week for Camp Pride. Um, do you know Campus Pride? The LGBT, they work with LGBT college students. Um, and I'm going to be a den mother helping these out for a week in the mountains in North Carolina, <laughs> which I'm excited about. No, I'm just kidding, but I mean, it's going to be really exciting. So you're right, there are pockets of at least, I don't know if they're liberal, but at least they're understanding and progressive spaces, yeah. even in the South. And, and good things come from religion, too. I'm thinking in terms of community building and learning mm-hmm. values, mm-hmm. and I don't want to discount those. No, absolutely not. I mean, I started a hashtag three, four years ago called Faithfully LGBT. It's, I had a column at the largest religion news site called Religion News Service. It's a big wire service um, called Faith with LGBT, where I wrote two, three times a week about LGBT and faith issues. Um, and so I used it as a hashtag to share my stuff. And then it, and over the last two, three years, it's really um, grown into community. People who have no idea who I am having it in their bios. I created this photo series of capturing LGBT people with faith across a, you know, a spectrum. Um, and you know, I've done fun Twitter Q and A's, but it kind of created this wonderful, vibrant community of LGBT people of faith and a lot of allies who really supported. Um, and I got to learn a lot about the experience of not being accepted or being ostracized in spaces that are so integral to at least if you if you if you're raised in a religious space, um, especially a Christian space, um, it's usually a lot a big part of your life it's not just a once a week it's everyone hanging out with it's wednesday you know prayer service it's um you know barbecues during the summer together as church family so to have that kind of space shift fundamentally for you when you come out as queer trans um can be um intense hurtful and uh, irreparable and cause irreparable damage yeah and i think that's good that when those things exist because I don't know if it's been recent, but the right, the conservatives have seemed to put a claim on religion, on the whole. Yeah, they've they've appropriated religious language, right? So it's it's kind of incredible to see a very specific group of you know people. It's very much white Southern evangelicals have this intense amount of political power, um, and when people like news programs when they're asking about commentary about religious stuff, they always book them <laughs> when which which is incredible because there's there's a uh, there's a lot of people you know i'm thinking auburn seminary and union seminary two seminaries in new york that are very progressive very fantastic do a lot of work around muslim issues or lgbt issues um and they're progressive um left in theology like literally clergy who are doing such amazing work who are on the front lines who are protesting for higher minimum wages and who are like people in collars like protesting over um, health care bills that are going to affect disability uh, people with disability and people who are absolutely affirming of LGBT people because they are an integral part of the body of Christ. Um, and so me knowing these people and seeing the work that's being done, but only seeing a very specific group of people being highlighted as the religious authority um, over scripture is just incredible. But I feel like it's shifting because these voices, like Reverend William Barber, who spoke at TNC, I don't know if you, so he's 
incredible, and he his platform has grown exponentially since since he spoke at the DNC. But it's just it's but he's been around forever. <laughs> he's he does more on Mondays in in North Carolina, where oh, yeah. um, like he created that and started that. He's a straight black clergy person who is absolutely speaks, you know, um, truth to power against homophobia and transphobia as a clergy person and yeah these pockets absolutely exist and that's great thrive. and the truth is that I would listen to what the conservatives and the right are saying in terms of issues if they weren't anti-LGBTQ if they weren't anti-abortion but and if um and I automatically assume someone, when they're religious, they're against abortion and they're against queer yeah. people. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I just had I had a, um, a meeting with my friend Blair Armani. She's a queer Muslim woman who worked for Planned Parenthood <laughs> and talking about the work she was doing and helping create access to abortion to um, low-income individuals and working with undocumented folks. And, you know, these these are the people who don't get highlighted as much. But there's also, like, and, and the stories that, of like this, even on major scales, don't get reported enough. I think it was it's somewhere in the south on the west, I don't know if it was Virginia, or even no, I don't think it was North Carolina, but it was the um, UCC, the United Church of Christ, sued the government to say, your ban on same-sex marriage infringes on my religious liberty. And they won. And that's how we won in that state, was because re- people of faith said, no, we believe we can marry same-sex individuals, and your ban is actually infringing on our ability to do so. And that's so crazy. That's so beautiful, right? But that wasn't talked about very much. The fact that we won marriage equality in one of the states before the Supreme Court decided on it was because people of faith spoke out and said, no, we need to be able to marry people of that's the same wild. sex. That's wild. That's <laughs> wild. Yeah. And yeah, it's so it's just a testament to um, the work that is being done by religious stuff, but, it, but it's being um, polarized or... Um, kind of hidden because of a very specific religious right. Yeah, and stories like that complicate the narrative, and mm-hmm. we don't like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's complexities to people of faith, and um, a lot of people can read um, scripture and get a lot of different interpretations. Uh, my theology com- stems from um, uh, it being life-giving and it being um, a source for good for people. If, if my theology is harming people and creating um, violence, um, it's not from God. <laughs> that's a very easy way to, to, to sum up my theology, but um, and that's what drives me as a person of faith, and that's what drives a lot of progressive people, whether Christian or Muslim or any religious background as well. Can I ask what your prayer looks like? Like what prayer does for my you? prayer look like? Um, I talk with God daily, right? My advocacy, my advocacy first came out of necessity. Um, I guess I mean that, that's that's a side story, but I, I mean I had an issue with intimate partner violence on a conservative Christian college campus and not knowing what to do, and having to speak out for myself, and then realizing that there was a lot of other people who needed help, and I ended up speaking out for them as well because I didn't want anyone to go through any of the things that I've gone through. Um, my prayer comes is is an important part of my advocacy because it sustains me and it roots me and it allows me to do the work that I'm doing because I engage with people a lot of times off the record and and you know these meetings with people of Christian denominations, publications, organizations, whatever it means, just to move the needle forward. Some of the times it's not necessarily trying to change the theology because in some of those spaces that conversation only gets into more friction. Like there's like a lot of Christian colleges have LGBT students and that's just a reality. And I don't want to forget these people who may not be out, who um, have to exist in those spaces. So me going to a Christian college who have to um, adhere to their religious denominations, theological beliefs, and me saying you need to be affirming and say that 
relationships are okay doesn't do any good. What I do instead is I go in and I say, um, what are ways that I can create pockets for these people that are going to be in this campus to thrive? What does it mean for us to have sexuality and gender 101 trainings for people who work with students? What does it mean to have a gay-shared alliance group that allows people to be in affirming spaces, even on these anti-LGBT spaces? What does it mean um, to make sure that math teachers or science professors don't go on and rampage about homosexuality uh, you know, for 10 minutes of their classes? Just trying to move that needle forward in very small, integral ways is a huge part of my work. And my prayer um, allows me to engage in those spaces as a queer person, because a lot of times what they're saying and what they're doing is violent against me as a person. Um, and when you explained yeah. your own religious beliefs in terms of not hurting anyone, it's kind of unbelievable that you have to like make that sad, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of anti-LGBT Christians are okay with their cognitive dissonance. And it's really weird to see a very um, clear path from violent rhetoric from very few verses, violent rhetoric, and then them wash their hands clean of its violence effects. It, it doesn't make sense. And so continuing to to um, illuminate them and, and show and, and point them back to that dissonance um, helps a lot of people come to, come to terms to a more affirming space. I'm thinking of um, leading Christian ethicist David Gushy, who in 2015, um, I hate saying came out because I, I feel so appropriative, um, he spoke out um, on his beliefs that actually being gay is innocent, is innocent. And he referenced a lot of his work as a Christian. Like, he literally has so many books that at least were being taught at the leading the, uh, uh, seminaries for even Southern Baptists. Um, referenced a lot of his work about um, ethics and about harm being done. And even a lot of his work over the Holocaust um, to show that a theology that espouses violence is not a theology of God. Um, and that so I, that cognitive dissonance is there for a lot of people if they don't ever get faced with it. But I feel like a lot of the work that I end up doing in storytelling and media advocacy um, helps expose some of that by humanizing individuals in ways that they can't turn away from. <laughs> Why would you laugh? <laughs> no, I just because I just love. I mean, it's 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 so interesting to me to. I don't know. I it's talking about my religious work and to LGBT people. It can always be odd or weird because I don't I also recognize that religion has hurt a lot of LGBT people and it can be very triggering for people to talk yes. about religious stuff like the way I do um, and about the people that I do so I I, don't know, I I always come in whenever I talk even even to you um, try to be as respectful and, and humble as possible when um, discussing the spaces that I enter I think you are being yeah. okay. <laughs> I think nobody's okay, religious experience is also the same right? No absolutely not I, uh, for me, my father was Catholic and my mom was Jewish. We grew up celebrating all like Judaism and Catholicism and learning about both. And I, I'm Jewish and I feel like I was given the ability to choose my religion. Mm -hmm. And who got that choice yeah. growing up? feel very fortunate. No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think anyone should... You know, 49% of LGBT people, like I said, are Christians. But I think a lot of people who, in, who grew up in these Christian spaces and get, um, you know, a lot of this hate... They either leave the church because it's not safe for them, or they leave the church because those experiences have shown them that they're actually not people of faith, and they've just been doing what their parents want them to do, whatever. And I think both of those reasons are very valid, right? Yeah. I think that we can have negative experiences with the churches and realizing, you know what, maybe, uh, wait, I don't know if I actually believe this stuff, and why am I saying here? And there's people who are hurt and don't want to stay there because they don't want to continue to hurt even if they believe that stuff, and I think um, I try to work 
on behalf of the both of those communities regardless. Absolutely. And in terms of uh, your identity uh, as a queer person of faith mm -hmm. and a bisexual, mm -hmm. I feel like these are two of the most underrepresented I'm people very in the world. I'm very niche and marketable. <laughs> no, I know. I, I talk, I, my, I know my, my stuff is very unique. I, I work primarily, predominantly, you know, and it's funny, my bisexual advocacy again came out of, so I would be writing and talking about religious work because um, I believe in doing the work and organizing work and then writing from a um, experience, like a knowledgeable perspective so I can give actual best practices. Um, and I would identify as bisexual in like a piece about something religious, nothing to do with bisexuality. But then the comment section and everything would be like, bisexuality, oh, and they would like freak out. So I started writing about bisexuality because I saw such a like misunderstanding and need for the content, um, and then it just spiraled. And then I got booked to speak on that as well, and I've written for dozens of publications just on that as well, which is interesting. Yeah, and in terms of misunderstandings around bisexuality, it was not until fairly recently that I found out that it... It's non-binary. Yeah, it is. So it's. I mean, that's one of the things that um, I think a lot of people who don't actually ever engage bisexuals or bisexual community, they make up their own assumptions and ideas. Um, in the same way, you know, and I, I parallel it to a lot how a lot of people don't want to use plural pronouns as singular for non-binary people. <laughs> so it's actually really funny. People who are much more, who care much more about... Um, the English language and they care about people's identities but if you look at bisexual literature people uh, bisexual people have grown with our understanding of gender as the rest of the community has and has defined bisexuality as non-binary as early as like the 90s so like it's just people who aren't actually engaging in bisexual and bisexual people or community or even our history or literature that assume things and people are if they're really sticklers they're like bi means too I'm like okay well we can do bi means um, I'm attracted to genders of my own and genders that are not their own there's you too <laughs> there it's your two. It's a good solution. Um, it is. Yeah, it's a good solution. No, but I mean, it's so, uh, you know, stats also show that bisexual people community are the largest communities in the bisexual community are actually trans and people of color. Um, so there are a lot of trans and even non-binary bisexual people. So to actually say that bisexuality is transphobic or exclusive to binary genders is really weird for people who don't. <laughs> don't you label them like don't identify with binary or or uh genders or uh or not assist genders like so it's, it's so weird yeah i mean it makes sense so that you would assume that it's male female just because until fairly recently the public's uh the gender as a spectrum as something that's mutable as new to mainstream audiences yeah maybe new yeah it's new in terms of people understanding it obviously it's not new as, right. as a reality but um <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess it, it's just kind of this lack of education and assumptions that lead people to believe what it is. But I do a lot of work to try to dispel it. So it's yeah, it's also hard just when it's a um, commonly known yet misunderstood definition. Like mm -hmm. that misunderstood has like kind of taken over. Yeah, and uh, and it's also clouded with a ton of stereotypes against our community that have uh, led uh, bisexual people to be a an invisible majority, right? Because like bisexual people make a larger percentage than gay and lesbian. Um, but you're not able to see bisexual people as visible for a lot of reasons. Um, one, a lot of bisexual people aren't, aren't out because of the biphobia they face, both in gay spaces and straight spaces. Um, the assumptions between bisexual people when they're in same-sex or different sex relationships that they're actually straight or they're actually gay. Um, and the lack of um, of allowing, of gay people allowing bisexual people in, in gay queer spaces. Um, which is so, it's just so odd to me because like, there's so much history of bisexual people being on the front lines, um, which I try to bring up in my writing a lot, right? I mean, 
Pride itself was inspired by the Christopher Street Liberation Day March, which was co-done by a bisexual woman who was actually in a long-term relationship with a cisgender man. Um, she's affectionately known as the mother of Pride, um, and a lot of people say that bisexual people shouldn't be allowed in Pride. It's just like wild. Um, I've never heard anyone say that. Oh, really? Really? Every year. I mean. LGBTQ Nation posted something about um, why don't you feel comfortable at Pride, and the majority of people at comments um, were saying that they don't feel comfortable being there as bi, and a lot of people saying bisexual people shouldn't be there, because there's an option, or they have the privilege of being with someone of a different sex, and that's... Oh, that's horrible. So that's really interesting, though, but like also that also shows their lack of understanding, because what you're essentially saying is that because you're attracted to, let's say you're attracted to, I don't know, brunettes and blondes, and uh, someone's telling you you can only date blondes, but you fell in love with a brunette. Like, what are you... Like, you know, it, it, when it's not about the gender, it's about the person, you don't want to force yourself to only be in relationships with certain people in order to, quote-unquote, seem queer enough for gay people, which, I don't know, I, I can go on a tangent. It, it's, 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 it's just really odd to me, because bisexual people, I think, um, burst more binaries than a lot of gay people. Like, I, the most queer people I know are bisexual. Like, just things like my friend who actually wrote about he wrote about it for Cosmo Zachary Zane about he's a bi guy who tried bottoming and just wasn't into it until his girlfriend topped him with a strap on and that's how he fell in love with bottoming <laughs> and just like the, the like and like he was also in a relationship with a man who was married for ten years and they all lived together uh, with the wife and the wife had a boyfriend and a girlfriend and they were all bisexual and super fucking queer and it's just like and so all the bisexual people I know actually are very very visibly queer and um, and bursting of binaries, but there's also people who aren't necessarily, who, who are very normative, but they're just as queer. And, and that is why I kind of, it irks me not to place a, uh, I was trying to figure out a phrase out in not an offensive way, but I'll say it. It irks me when people come out as dating the same sex, having previously dated other ones, and they don't label themselves bisexual. Um, I know that's part of like the process, let's say, getting used to these labels, but we need numbers in terms of the fight. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... Yeah, there's... Yeah, there, I mean, it's both. I think there's people who come to a better realization of the sexuality and are actually gay, right? You're talking about closeted people who felt that they needed to be in relationships with women, for example, gay men, who are actually gay. And then there's people who... Um, try to avoid biphobia by saying well actually I'm lesbian now I'm, I'm trying to remember there was a female pop singer like a UK like a British female pop singer who was in a relationship with a woman for five years and then when they broke up she married a man and she called it her lesbian phase because she didn't want to identify herself as bisexual and I was like sis <laughs> I was like you were loving on a woman for five years that's a phase I mean I also understand the, the want because it, the safety portions of things like gay people can gay and lesbian people can be really hostile to bisexual people yeah and i don't want to force people to own an identity label that they may not feel safe doing so publicly um and, and i do think it's that, complex and I, yeah i want to say that labels are dumb and they're restrictive and they're unhelpful and yet they allow us to count ourselves mm-hmm. and they allow you when you're starting out to know that you're not the only one that feels yeah. like this so labels, I find, you know, so I, that's so funny that you said that because I think there's a lot of gay people who have um, found a lot more of uh, progress, especially politically, and they're like, oh, you know, we're just people. Um, we don't need labels. But <laughs> bisexual people still have really high rates of disparities um, in health um, and a slew of other things. And there are no LGBT, uh, none of the national LGBT organizations have a single person working on like bisexual issues. 
right? None of them. Um, the one that comes closest is GLAD and their work around Bisexual Awareness Week. Um, there, you know, there isn't, like, if you look at um, LGBT funders group, they count all of the money that goes to various causes and that goes to specific causes. Less than, like, 0.1% go to bisexual people. Like, it's wild. Like, every, like, um, it's, they did a 40-year funding big report, and out of that 40 years, bisexual, bisexual people causes got $200,000. The next was, like, $17 million for trans, and then it was, like, Three hundred million for gay and lesbian issues. And it's just like so. Like, there's a huge like, like it just disconnections of like how big the community is and the actual needs. And so those labels are important because it allows us to be kind of said. And the stats and stuff is what helps in, uh, inform us of the issues that are needed. It also creates visibility. People don't really start to care about issues that communities are facing unless they're able to name them and see them. Right. Um, the reason trans people um, are such. Um, are, are being such uh, people are such aware of trans people now is because of the visibility in media, um, which illuminated all of the various things that trans people have been going through. Right, trans women of color have not just now been being murdered at ridiculous rates. Like this has been ongoing for decades. But the only reason media is talking about it in such a um, you know uh, progressive or uh, uh, intense way is because of the visibility of. Uh, trans actresses and uh, various celebrities and politicians and people coming out and being able to um, speak out about their communities. Um, and people are also have their own platforms in terms of social media to put out these issues as opposed to having to like book an interview with a newspaper yeah, or like a movie TV. Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely changed in how we're able to connect with people and able to share our messages because people don't necessarily have to be a celebrity to be a celebrity. Like, they don't necessarily yeah. have to, you know, they don't necessarily have to be an actor or a musician or whatever in order to have a microphone and a platform, which is good and sometimes bad because some people shouldn't be talking about things that they have platform. Yeah. <laughs> but, in terms of yeah. bisexual representation on TV, though, I think it's very trendy to have characters attracted to both sexes, but never to label them with bisexual. So that's one of the things that, great. okay, so the only time people say that we shouldn't do labels is when it's bisexual people. Right? Why not? No one And no one ever says he's attracted only to men but he doesn't do labels like no one says that like no gay man's like yeah I only date men but I don't do labels like no like you're gay like and you say that because you have no problem saying that um there's a lot of um stigmatization that comes around with bisexuality um and so that's why they try not to label it I mean it also feeds into it depends like there's very few representation in media in general like if you look at the cloud reports very few bisexual characters um and the ones that are typically fall into gross tropes they can't they're not decisive they're super slutty they're using sex for power um they're you know they're uh they're not labeling themselves because of whatever which is actually interesting glad still counts those characters that don't label themselves as bisexual they do uh-huh. I know. so there's actually way more characters even though it's like a handful counted in our reports um even though none of them actually ever say the word um, because I'm watching House of Cards right now, and w- like, you know, Jesus. like, <laughs> and, you know, it's like it, it's, and you know, and sometimes as an advocate, um, and some people bristle at this because I think labels can get really intense for folks, like because it, it is about self determination. But as, as sometimes as an advocate, you have to call a spade a spade, and I say that in terms of if you you may not want to own a bis like identity label as bisexuality, fine. But the sex you're having is bisexual, right? Or you're engaging in bisexuality, or however you want me to say it. <laughs> you know, like um, I think about like bisexual erasure has really fueled, which is intersections of my advocacy, has really fueled ex gay narratives. 
Like, if we really discuss bisexuality, none of the successful ex-gay narratives would hold any fucking water. Now, that gets complex because it could also help villainize bisexual people as gay people are like, why is this bisexual person claiming to be ex-gay when they really are just bisexual? But I also, as an advocate, both in the faith world and the bisexual world, I say if, if, if these ex-gays, for example, are successfully having sex with people of the same sex and people of different sexes or their wives, um, they're bisexual. I mean, they may want to own it and we want own that identity, but that's what's happening um, in general. So yeah, it gets complex and house of cards. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that a positive <laughs> example to discuss one yeah. would be the, uh, for me, the Oregon governor. She's, oh, Kim Brown's fe- so great. Yeah, she's married to a man, and she's openly bisexual. She's openly bisexual. I think she's the first openly bi- or queer person to be elected as a governor, I think it is. I believe as a governor, yeah. As a governor. Um, she, and she's doing so much good stuff in terms of um, progressive issues all around um, there. She's I met her like at a fundraiser oh, really? for Victory Fund like a year ago. Yeah, and she's like, I love your work. And I was like, oh my God, you're amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, no, she is a great example you know, um, you know, Sada, there's a lot of Sada Ramirez from Grey's Anatomy has been openly bisexual at least for the past year, openly and visibly, and she's been doing such amazing work. Um, Halsey has been very vocally bisexual, and you know, and Halsey is an interesting um, person because I feel like when she first came out, she wanted, she wanted to do the I'm bisexual, but I don't want to be defined by it, which is what a lot of people do when they're like trying to like not. I don't know, not worry, not make straight people uncomfortable, whatever it is. Um, but I think after she saw the backlash both from straight and gay people, now she's like, well, fuck you guys. I'm going to talk about sexuality all the goddamn time. And like now she talks about it all the time. And I'm like, yes. Um, there's a lot of female celebs. Like Lauren, I can't pronounce her last name, Did who did that song, Strangers of the Hell Seas, Bisexual. Um, you know, I got in trouble on this podcast um, for a good reason, because a couple episodes ago, we had uh, Nico Tortorella, who's bisexual, mm-hmm. and I was saying that I could not name many bisexual people, just off the top of my head, without doing research. Okay. Um, so, you know, only a couple people came to my mind. You know, I couldn't think of, like, Alan Cumming and those people. Alan Cumming. There's um, very few bisexual, op- openly bisexual men in media. Yes. That's the one that, it's, it, that is harder. But I think that that, like, the example of me not being able to think of them is because, is, like, obvi- like, yeah, I should have thought of more, but like also like um, they're so it's invisible. It is, it's invisible, and but there's also I mean, yeah, but there's it goes a few the of them. When it comes to men, there's very few of them. I'm thinking of um, Andy Mientes, also who's a friend of mine who was like um, you know on Smash and some of the TV shows who's openly bisexual and married to a man. Um, and I love that Nico is is openly and proudly embracing the bisexual label because I think it's so important. I agree. For um, a while, he wasn't. He was really I afraid know, of it. I know. This, this I, is all I public. tweeted yeah. him a lot about oh, really? it. Oh, yeah. And he liked a lot of the tweets, so I don't know if I influenced any of it. But I was like, I was like, oh, this is this is great. But I would love to point at like history and stats. For Mecca, it, it, I mean, Nico, I think at the beginning was very idealist, as he should be, as a lot of people want to be. But as an activist, I just know, like, I need there's a different way of approaching things that allow for very tangible effect, positive effects for the community, if that makes sense. Uh, it does make sense. I think that what we saw with him was like a, like a public coming out and figuring it out of who you are. Mm-hmm. So he was like, oh, I sleep with men and women and people across a gender yeah. spectrum, but I'm not bisexual. I may be fluid. Yeah. And then it was coming to terms with that. I'm, yeah. I'm hoping that like Liz Gilbert claims it really soon, yeah. to be honest. She's uh, yeah. now married to a woman. Yeah, um, you know, I would love um, Sarah Paulson to I would love. I mean, what? There's a list, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and most of these, and most of their publicists have heard from me. <laughs> I'm like, y'all, please. Um, but yeah. I would love to see a lot more bisexual men come out of yeah. Hollywood as well. We're almost out of time, but I want I'm one sorry, more question for you. No, you're fine. <laughs> um, I'm curious. In terms of your own bisexuality, mm-hmm. do you think does that create more pressure for you to present more masculinely? 
so I wrote a piece about this for Slate because are you still, telling me just to um, read that instead? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I just say like this is something that I've definitely discussed okay. and engaged in. Um, I'm a bisexual guy who experiences life predominantly in gay male spaces, right? I work in advocacy in LGBT spaces. Um, I go to gay nightlife spaces. All of my friends are pretty much gay. If I meet women, they're lesbians <laughs> or not interested, in, you know, in men. Um, and I engage with femininity in a way that um, feels comfortable to me. Um, and that complica- complicates uh, my bisexuality because of a lot of... Okay, this is deeper. Okay, so it's because of this idea that if you're attracted to a man, really a cisgender man, if you're attracted to penis, that's where you are. So bisexual women are actually straight, and bisexual men are actually gay. And so I'm already expected to be gay because of that, but if I complicate it with wearing heels or being having feminine mannerisms, that really um, further invalidates my bisexuality in people's eyes. Um, reg- which, has, like I've talked about it before, like I had a girlfriend who specifically broke up with me because she was being made fun of, for having a quote-unquote gay boyfriend and I asked her I was like do you like do you deny that like I'm physically attracted to you in ways that she could not deny and she was like well no and I was like what the hell do you want from me you know like I'm like I'm clearly into you both physically and romantically there's no denying that from our experiences (laughs) um and those kind of stereotypes kind of ruined that idea which I kind of love Nico too because Nico can be a little bit visibly masked, but I think he's engaging and finding himself a lot as well in his in his expression. Um, and I'm loving seeing that kind of transformation, that like allowing himself to do that. And I would love to see more bisexual men come out in a variety of gender expression or like expressions of um, their sexual orientation and really complicate that narrative. I agree. Uh, thank you for doing this today. My pleasure. I had so much fun. Good, it went by so, so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> if people want to find more of your work, should we send them to your website? Yeah, my website says elielcruz.com or my Twitter handle is elielcruz. Fantastic. So, yeah. Thank you. And if anybody has suggestions for guests, uh, tweeting at me is the easiest way. Tweet from Jeff Masters one And we will see you next week with another great interview. Bye. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. 